Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Malcolm, thanks for coming here. Uh, I don't think Malcolm Gladwell needs any introduction, but um, Malcolm is the host of Revisionist History, um, a podcast that you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts, and a longtime uh, reporter at The New Yorker, 22 years, and also uh, before that, a um, uh, science reporter at the, uh, and a business reporter at The Washington Post, and also the author of several books, which I'm sure most of you have read, or at least bought, hopefully. Um, so these days, you're podcasting, um, and still writing, of course, but how, have, how did you decide to make that transition from being a writer um, to being more of a, uh, whatever a podcaster is? Is, uh, I mean, I like it better than writing books. It's more interesting because it engages more senses, and there are things you can capture on a podcast you can't capture on the page. Um, so, for example, I recorded the last one this morning, and the last one is this crazy story about Elvis. And at one point, I'm in Nashville um, in Jack White's office, and he's playing, he's an Elvis fanatic, so he's playing Elvis for me. And As one does. As one does. Yeah. And it's this fantastic moment, because here's this guy who's an insanely great musician, who's incredibly charismatic. He's as far away from me as you are from me, and he's playing for me, right? You know, we have microphones, and he's, you know, making jokes and talking about it. And like, I could write that up, and you would say, oh, that's pretty cool. But if you can hear it, then you're in the room with me. And it's just, and then later, after I saw Jack White, I go down the street and I hang out with this singer songwriter who no one's ever heard of, who is extraordinary in a totally different way. And so you have, and she appears in the podcast right after Jack White. So you have this experience of me, you're with me in Nashville going from Jack White's Third Man Records to the Sony building in the space of an afternoon, and I don't have to explain anything, I just have to play the tape and like cut out the parts that aren't interesting. Um, that's just Sounds way more- sort of easy. Yeah. No, it's not easy at all. <laughs> no, it's really hard. But it's just more immediate. Yeah. And um, it delivers a different and much, I think a much richer kind of experience if you're um, listening, like, you don't understand, particularly with, like, so Jack White's a good example. Uh, if you only, what you normally hear about him is you hear his records, which are super produced, refined, you know, and you don't hear him, he only, he just plays, he doesn't talk, he just plays. Or you go to see him in a, a show and he's half a mile away. Um, but what you can get on a, what you can get on a podcast is you can have him, he's playing and he's talking simultaneously, and you're seeing a side of him you don't normally see. And there's just no other medium, I think, that can capture that so um, beautifully. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I'm just in love with, with the kind of power of it. Do you, has it changed the way you think about your topics? I mean, a lot of the topics you've covered recently on the podcast are ones that actually you could have written about quite easily. The, the football at Penn and, and the trauma yeah. there. And, uh, 
Um, immigration, again, a topic, you know, yeah. you went back and looked at the history of, uh, of you course, so there's similar topics, but they're obviously presented much differently, or has it changed the way you think about what topics you'll cover? It has definitely changed, and I would dispute that I would have written articles about many of those subjects. I wouldn't have, um, just because uh, your audience, first of all, is much more forgiving in a podcast, and it's much more... Um, you don't have book reviewers to deal with. Well, no, it's not even that. It's yeah. that you're, when you're, you're on a subway and you're listening to a podcast with your headphones in, you're much more tolerant of digression. So if you're reading something and like you're reading along and then the story takes a U-turn and all of a sudden you're kind of introduced to some character and blah, 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 there's a chance to really roll your eyes and you say, get to the point. But I feel like people don't do that on a podcast. I feel like they'll just roll with it. And you can do these. So I have one other episode where it's all about these two quants, one of whom is, some of you will know, the guy who runs uh, AQR. Cliff um, Asnes. Cliff Asnes. Yeah. So it's Cliff Asnes. Well known to people in yeah. this room. Yeah. Well, he used to work here. Yeah. Right. So he wrote a paper on, for SSRN, the big wonky website, with his buddy, another quant, which is this hilarious paper. And so I go and I hang out with them, and then I go on, in the course of telling the story of this paper, go on a series of absolutely bananas digressions, which only are connected to the story of Jeff, Cliff Asnes because I say so. They're not actually connected. <laughs> if I were to write them, you wouldn't. You would say this is absurd. But I say with great authority, and this is what led me to, and I go on this long thing about Idris Elba. Right? So I have Cliff Asnes, and I have Idris Elba. And I think I can make it plausible, but only because I'm, you're, you know, you're following along on the subway and you're like, whatever, I have 20 minutes to yeah, go. I got, yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> um, How about, uh, talk a little bit about the, the pen one because that was mm. based on a, a yeah. talk you gave at the school, which must have gone over really well. Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was awkward. I, <laughs> I went, I have, pen. for some reason I've never understood, keeps inviting me to things. And, <laughs> So the first time I went, they said, they, you know, they put you in the big auditorium and they, there's like 2,000 people. And the first time I gave this long talk about drinking, um, in which I said- Pro or con? Well, I, uh, it's not neither. I said, I accused them of not knowing how to drink. And I thought, well, I, this is um, both interesting experience and useful in the sense that it will prevent me from ever having to come again. Um, <laughs> that turned out not to be the case. So then. They invited me again, and they wanted me to talk about proof. And so I gave this talk in which I said, uh, after it was an insanely long speech, and the first half of it, the first like 35 minutes, is all about the battle against black lung disease in 1900. And I'm sure they're all of them are like, what? And then I make this U-turn, and I accuse them of being um, complicit in the death of football players and of sanctioning, by going to games, sanctioning a dangerous thing that's every bit as morally reprehensible as coal mining in 1900. And uh, there was some degree of uh, mystification, I think, on part of the audience. Some kind of bought it. The, f the administration people in the room, you know, were like, that's, you know, that's it. We're not more Malcolm back. Gladwell, yeah. Um, but it was a very weird experience to kind of, so I've made this habit of going and accusing Penn students of not thinking through their moral choices, uh, which I think is probably useful because I think if you are a Penn student, the one thing you probably don't get urged to do nearly enough is think through your moral choices, right? 
I mean, you've sort of been exempted from a lot of moral conversations by virtue of being, accepting, of being accepted into Penn. Another of your favorite sports is golf. Explain, for those who missed that, yeah. why you hate golf, and hopefully everyone in this room I don't hate golf. golf. Yeah. Although it was useful to say I hated golf in the context of that episode I did about <laughs> it. Um, I have a friend who, uh, who, uh, who's, who lives in Brentwood, and for many years when I go to visit him, I stay in his guest house, like Cato Cameron, and I, he lives next to the Brentwood Country Club, and in Brentwood, as I'm sure you know, yeah. People run around the Brentwood Country Club. Around. Around, yeah, on outside this the narrow, fence. rocky track. Whereas there, you know, and on the other side of a barbed wire fence, there, there is, you know, 400 verdant acres. Um, where, by the way, no one ever plays, I've never seen anyone ever play golf on the Brentwood Country Club. It seems to exist in a kind of ceremonial capacity as a shrine to the game of golf, not as actually a working <laughs> golf course. But I, every time I run around it, I wonder, well, why can't I run on the golf course? Like, I don't understand why I can't run. No, they're not playing golf on it. Like, why not put it to good use? And were it a park, it would be a fantastic park that would turn Brentwood into one of the greatest urban neighborhoods in the world. Just as, you know, if you go up to the top of the new Waldorf in LA, and you're looking down on LA Country Club, which is an even more egregious example of this, and you realize if they were just took out the country club and removed the fence, it's an incredible park. It's, it, it puts, Central Park to shame. I mean, it would just turn. Anyway, so I, what I couldn't understand was how is it possible for a 400-acre park uh, or 400-acre golf course to exist in the middle of the most expensive real estate in the world? Like, how can they afford the property taxes? There's only, a, there's only like 1,000 members, 500 members of these clubs. Clubs, property taxes on a half an acre property of Beverly Hills is probably what, 200 grand a year? Mm -hmm. So you've got 400 acres. The value of LA Country Club is $20 billion. So immediately I was, my puzzle was, first of all, my first thought was I wasn't even gonna do a podcast. I wanted to try and join one of these clubs. And just run. No, because if I could get, because once I realized the reason they exist is they have a special property tax deal in the city. Yeah. Then I realized, oh, so if I join LA Country Club and I get the city to repeal the special deal on property taxes, LA Country Club will be forced to sell. And as a member, I'll get you a cut. Get, yeah. So if you do the math, <laughs> it's 20 billion divided. We can build you a model for that. Yeah. yeah, 20 billion divided 500 ways. How is that not the easiest money you'll ever make? So all I had to do is join the club and then immediately start agitating for the property tax exemption to be repealed. Repealed. So do, is there any common thread? Uh, I mean, I have a hypothesis, but is there, do you see a common thread between the, the types of topics you've been covering? Um, What's your hypothesis? I think they all have to do with, at some level, good, good well-intentioned people doing things that turned out to be counterproductive, yeah. at yeah. one level. Or, as you said earlier, sort of moral choices uh, that we made. Or, or some, there's a, a theme of sort of social justice that runs through yeah. it at some level. Um, I suppose but but I don't, I, you may not have started that way. I mean, maybe it's just the way you tackle the topics. Well, the, pod, the podcast form lends itself beautifully. It's essentially, you're giving a sermon, right? Yeah. So it lends itself beautifully to um, that kind of argument. Whereas, again, on the page, it didn't work as well. You get preachy very quickly. But 
there's a, there's a kind of, I find it very, um, if you tell a story properly, then at the end you have an extraordinary amount of freedom to, um, to deliver your, your moral, your lesson, your, mm -hmm. you know, if you kind of, you can, if you got, especially if you've got, these are 40 minutes long, and 40 minutes is an extraordinary long period of time um, to kind of, and if you've captured someone's attention for that, if they put in 38 minutes, then the last two minutes is, you have 100% freedom to, to subdue yeah. as you, so there, that's probably why I've, I'm attracted to that kind of, um, uh, that kind of story. So, um, so the, the, the business is growing a bit. Obviously it's ad supported. Um, you read the ads. I love, it's probably my favorite part of the podcast. Um, you have a lot of fun reading them. Some people don't want to read the ads. Do you find that strange or? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I really like, I did two this morning for my last couple of episodes, including one that I think is my finest one yet. I'll say very, very immodest. Better than the wine one? Because the, oh, the wine one's one, pretty good. I have a second wine one, Blue Apron one, where I'm sitting, uh, on the terrace of my chateau in France with their new wine pairings. Yeah. Like, I was very pleased with that. And then I have a zip recruiter one about, um, uh, you know, I had this, I invented You did this, the I, Star Wars. I did Star Wars. I had this whole thing. What, if, what if, if the. Yeah, if yeah. only. If only. If only they had zip recruiter, you know, for the intergalactic empire. Um, <laughs> and this one is all about how my, the University of Toronto, where I went to school, our mascot is called the Varsity Blue. And I was like, <laughs> And like everyone else has lions and tigers and like fighting Irish. What is the varsity? And we have a blue. blue. We have like a blue running up and down the sidelines. You know, if only that is zip recruiter for college mascots in Canada. I was quite proud of that one. Yeah. But but why why are some people why it's an ad supported do, do you understand it all? The, the um well journalists, you know, historically have they've took very seriously the notion that they should not there should be a wall between yeah. the business side and the editorial side. And so they think of somehow that they are um, trespassing when they cross that line by reading an ad. Um, I mean, if I look at my Twitter, sometimes someone will say, you know, I cannot get over how outrageous it is that Uber is sponsoring revisionist history. And my res first response is always, you know, you're getting it for free. Like, relax. Well, I <laughs> relax. Like, <laughs> if I was charging you and then also submitting you to an Uber, and then I can understand, but here's some dude, like, I don't know where he is in New Zealand. And I don't think they even have Uber. And he's complaining because a free podcast, which I spent like months on, has 30 seconds of an Uber ad. Yeah. So there is that little lingering thing, but I suspect it'll go away. Um, one of, one of your, uh, your old friends, Michael Lewis, has now decided to just skip the book part and go straight to audible book. Mm -hmm. um, do you see more writers doing that now? Yes. Would does. you do that? Oh, I think I tried, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I mean, this is a very, seems to me a very young room, and it strikes me that this generation is much more inclined to listen to things and uh, read things. And so there does seem, if you would like to reach the youngest core of your audience, you sort of have to do things this way. Um, and uh, also the possibilities of reading, um, what I really suspect will happen is, and I'm thinking of doing this myself with my next book, is that in future we will do two forms, or maybe even three forms of a book. One is a written form, and one is 
an audio form that's not me reading the book, but rather me producing the book like I produced a podcast. Yeah, and that, that to me, I've never understood why people don't do. Oh, yes. Yeah, because you have, if, especially if you're doing a work of nonfiction and you have these voices that you've taped and... Oh, yeah, so know. I've been taping with high-quality tape all of my Interview. subjects. Yeah. And, like, I have one... I interviewed the guys, one of the guys who did ran the CIA's enhanced interrogation program. And I have like nine hours of tape with him. And you kind of have to listen to that. Like, I mean, you sort of, well, it's really hypnotic and addictive once you get into, and then way, way, way more powerful when you can hear his voice than when I describe it for you on the page. Uh, you started as a business writer a little bit, and then a yeah. science writer. Uh, yes. at the Washington Post, which is known for its yeah. deep uh, science reporting. No, I mean, so it was, a, it was always an interesting platform. I, I lived in Washington at the time. Uh -huh. and I you would write, at the time. Yeah, that, that's true. We could talk about that, but <laughs> a different time. Um, but the Washington Post was, you know, was this big political paper, and you'd land on the front page occasionally with these big, splashy um, articles. How did, you, how did you find your way into the Washington Post and convince them that, in those science years. was front page material, yeah. Well, the thing about science uh, is that no one except people who write about science, and sometimes not even them, know anything about science. So the process of getting a story onto the front page is, um, it is an, an act of, um, of uh, persuasion, right? You go to someone who knows nothing about the subject and you convince them, the editor. Ben Bradley your, or whoever, yeah, yeah. That your story belongs there, and if you're a political reporter, and you're going to the editor of the Washington Post trying to convince them, it's tough going. They know yeah, they cross-examine cross, cross yeah. examine you. And if you're talking about like someone just you know cloned the moo protein, they don't know. And if you just assert <laughs> confidently, you know, this is huge, we're gonna look bad if we don't put this on the front page. You know, one in every 10 times, they're gonna fold and gonna just, say absolutely. We don't get know. anything anything interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it was one summer, we were actually, there are times I think when we did crossed the line into slightly unscrupulous, not unscrupulous, but when we gave things more weight than perhaps they deserved. Yeah. We had something we called the disease of the month club, which was that we were determined to solve the cure disease every month. So we felt that was the kind of limit of the paper's appetite for curing diseases. So if you go through the scientific literature, the medical literature with a keen enough eye, you can discover something that sounds like a cure pretty much once a month. So we, that's what we, that was our little kind of campaign. And what you don't really stress when you're talking to the editor is what the prevalence of the disease in question is. So you're solving a lot of like really, 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 really obscure diseases. But that's in like the 21st paragraph. Um, the big topic of the day was AIDS. And there were, I mean, if there was ever a topic that generated a lot of misinformation and myth, um, that, that had to have been it. And the, the amount of misunderstanding of what was a serious public health crisis was, was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And you, you, that, was, that was probably the main topic you covered in those days. What did you learn from covering that about kind of the way in which public um, misunderstands science? Yeah. I mean, super interesting in retrospect. Um, <clears throat> and I talk a little bit actually in one of the episodes upcoming in my, my uh, podcast, I talk, I go back to those years. The really, there are several really interesting things, but the, in retrospect, the most important thing was that at the time, 
in the first 10 years of the epidemic, so early 80s to early 90s, the, the institutions that took the brunt of the criticism were uh, the major medical research and pharma. They were the bad guys. They didn't understand this. They were taken by surprise. They were killing us. They were coming up with, in retrospect, they were the heroes. Not just the heroes, um, more than that. In retrospect, what they did is stunning. They took a class of viruses that we, retroviruses, which we knew almost nothing about in the early 1980s. And in the space of a decade, they essentially learned how to, uh, not cure, but, but treat as well as we could treat any kind of chronic illness in a decade. That is unheard of. I mean, it's just, in retrospect, it is, um, it is stunning how well served we were by those institutions. The combination of NIH, uh, uh, academic medicine, and big pharma did one of the most extraordinary, performed one of the most extraordinary innovative acts of the 20th century for which they have, they got and have gotten zero credit. It says something, I think, really um, not very flattering about the way the public perceives and the way the media and the public um, dealt with that disease. I think we, and I- Well, hold, it became very myself. political, and so the debate played out more about the politics, politics. of AIDS rather than about the science. But also, there was so little understanding of how scientific innovation works. Um, and in retrospect, you know, the, at the time, there was an incredible amount of time and energy spent about arguing for access to a drug called AZT. I mean, I cannot tell you how many, how much, how many kind of months and years of political and social energy went into the fight for access to AZT. AZT was worse than useless. The whole thing was a waste of time. What we should have been doing is going to everyone who was doing AIDS research and making their life easier. And instead, what we did is we screamed at them. And then when they succeeded, gave them no credit. How did you manage over all the years really to avoid, I mean, there's an undercurrent sometimes of politics to your mm. reporting, but you, you lived in Washington, you were surrounded by, your best friends were immersed in politics, covering politics. How have you managed not really to write about it over the years? Well, there's no upside to writing about politics, right? Is there's, yeah. uh, it's done very well by lots of people who know more about it than I do. Um, I don't, you know, it's like, why would you swim in the most crowded of pools? Yeah. Um, this is a theme I have returned to again and again. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm a big fish, little pond person, not a little fish, big pond. Yeah. But this is a, this is a big pond country. Yeah. Um, but there, but you, you, but there are a lot of people. There's a lot of, as 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 you know, there's, you know, you're you're an avid consumer of academic research. Um, you find very interesting academic research. Why aren't more people doing that? And I mean, it's it's gotten a little bit more in vogue, particularly in the economic side. But um, but there's obviously a lot of people who can think but not write. Yeah. And they need people to interpret uh, and tell their stories. Uh, it's interesting that 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 hasn't gotten. More involved. No, I mean, I think a lot of it is um, that it, uh, you have to have, to write about academia properly, you need to have a deep sympathy for it. And I think a lot of people don't have deep sympathy for it. So you have to, so psychology, for example, is a tricky one to write about because a lot of psychological research is, poses as definitive and is not. 
And the first order reaction when you cover psychology and you discover that something you thought was super exciting is actually one little study that doesn't pan out and isn't replicated, and you get very disillusioned. And that chases a lot of people away. Whereas I, because I have such sympathy for academia, when I encounter that, I tend to say, well, wait a minute, this specific thing might not be true, or not true, it might not be useful in the way that it pretends to be useful, but it, where does it lead us? What is it, or if I take this and combine it with this and this and this, what does the sum total tell us? Or what interesting problem has this um, identified? And a lot of what psychology is doing is simply mulling over really, really interesting questions and trying to come up with a, an answer, even if that answer is incomplete. And in, in, unless you have sympathy for that kind of, of um, halting, indefinite enterprise, you can't write about it effectively. Do, do you, I mean, I assume at some level you, you've talked a little bit about this, but that sympathy comes from your, your, fam, your family. Your parents were, your father was a math professor at, mm -hmm. at the University of Waterloo. Your mother was a psychotherapist. So um, you talked a little bit about how your father, who, who passed away not long ago, influenced your life. But talk a little bit about how, how, did, how did you end up becoming a writer um, with that? You might have thought you would become an academic. Yeah. Well, I, I, got, I had the sense in college I wanted to be an academic, and then I, 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 I didn't think that I had the patience to be an academic. I think you need to have a great deal of patience. It's part of what I find so admirable about a lot of it. But I'm much more, um, I couldn't spend seven years writing a book. I mean, I would lose my mind. Um, and then um, I'm much more comfortable uh, being a generalist and being sort of interdisciplinary. Um, and so that's sort of, I, I, I think that early impulse to go into academia was, uh, was correctly um, ignored. Um, and then I didn't really know what I was going to do. I sort of fell into it by accident. I, I, I was still applying to business school like years after being a journalist. I would do it, you know, like clockwork every fall and this would never go. Um, so, you know, did you tell them, did you get accepted and say, no, thanks, I'll think about it for a year? Or? No, what would, what would happen is that I would... Or you would just fail to complete the application. I would fail out, I did my, is it GMAT or G, what is it? What's the uh, one you GMAT. did? GRE. No, no GRE GMAT. is general. Oh, that's right, that's right. By the way, and I could never quite wrap my mind around the absurdity of um, those tests, which I could do <laughs> on. I have a very, very long digression on this, which is going to be in my book, but there's so many ways in which... What's your new book? Oh, I'm writing a book called Talking to Strangers, and it's all about um, how to deal with people you can't trust, and um, about all kinds of curiosities in the way in which we deal with strangers. So this is actually, I'll tell you one little, this is a little glimpse. So I have a little thing about Madoff. So Madoff's super interesting from a lot of perspective. And there's this fantastic story buried in one of the uh, SEC filings on the Madoff case. It's like on page 500. They tell the story about how on a compliance, um, a routine compliance mission, they're going through the emails of people at Renaissance Technologies. And this is before Madoff is busted. So we all know Renaissance, smartest guys in the world. Mm -hmm. So we've got like, it's emails between three of their massively, you know, big-brained guys at Renaissance. And they have a small, through a series of swaps, they have a small piece of a Madoff fund. And the first guy says, uh, 
he, this is not real. This is, I mean, this is just no way this is real. And then the second guy says, I'll take a look at it. And he emails back, he says, yeah, it's not real. And then they, then they send it upstairs to like the super, super smart, like one of the founding 250 IQ point guys. And he looks at it and he's like, yeah, it's totally not real. Like this is, you know, nonsense. And by the way, then they say, well, should we get rid of it? And one guy says, well, you know, even though Madoff's returns are fake, they're lower than our returns. So our real returns are higher than his fake returns. So it's like, what's the point of us holding on to the stake? So they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then they talk to the people at the SEC and they say, well, he's fake, it's fake. Just thought we'd tell you that. And the SEC guy says, oh, we checked him out, he's real. And the millennium guys say, oh, in that case, we'll hold on to it. Now, you mean the, re yeah, the Rentec? The, Renta yeah. the Renaissance guys yeah. say, we'll hold on to it. Now think about that story for a moment. It's totally fascinating. They're smarter than Madoff. They make more money legally than he makes illegally. They know he's a crook. They know that, they, that <laughs> they know that the SEC thinks he's not a crook, but they also know they're smarter than the SEC, right? So in every way, they have their bases covered, and they're 99% sure that this guy's a crook, and they should get rid of it. There's no business case for keeping it. And what do they do? They keep it. So that, to me, is this beautiful example of an idea that I explore a lot in this book, which is called Default to Truth, which is that <clears throat> you don't disbelieve someone when you have doubts about them. In fact, having doubts about the veracity or, or, or uh, truthfulness of some act or person is consistent with continuing to believe in them. You only give up when your doubts reach such an overwhelming level that you can no longer plausibly maintain the opposite case. So the Renaissance guys, the fact that they knew 95%, with 95% certainty that Madoff was a crook in 2001, whatever the hell it was, was not sufficient, right? All it took was some 28-year-old from the SEC who couldn't, who could no couldn't more know. have got, he couldn't have gotten an internship at Renaissance. <laughs> that, the fact that this 28-year-old said, oh, I checked him out, he's fine. That was like, all right, all right. The SEC has spoken, right? We'll hang on to our, and by the way, the stake was like $20 million. They don't even, there's $20 million on the floor. It's like, it's not even, why would they hang on to it? But they do. Okay, a couple quick questions. Uh, journalists you most admire? Probably Michael Lewis. Yeah, great writer. Best. Uh, best book you've read recently? <clears throat> oh, that's really hard. Uh, uh, oh, I read, um, for a long, complicated reason, uh, I was really interested in um, Sylvia Plath for my, for the, not the reason you think I wasn't interested in her poetry. That's too complicated to explain. I read the Janet Malcolm book on Sylvia Plath, which is just so amazing and devastating. Um, what do you listen to when you run? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Runners, you know, we're very snobbish about this. Yeah, some people listen, some people don't. No, no, no. <laughs> real runners people, don't listen. Real runners don't listen. Listen. Yeah. Who would you like to interview, uh, most like to interview that you've never been able to, either because they're dead or just haven't answered your calls? Um, oh, that's a super interesting question. Uh, Probably an athlete of some kind, um, uh, a sort of a, a super cerebral one, um, you know, like a, 
I mean, I hesitate to say John McEnroe, but I kind of would like to interview John McEnroe. Someone could, that could probably be arranged. That could probably be arranged. But I, I like, I like <laughs> the combination of people who both do something physically and think about it simultaneously. That, to me, is a really fascinating combination. Interesting. Best advice you ever got? Um, never, uh, never do a good job. Never do a good job at something you don't want to do. <laughs> Think about that. All right, Malcolm, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This podcast was recorded on June 19th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.